Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. I've been looking forward to this very much indeed. And uh, it's been wonderful to be here with the leaders for a couple of days in some magnificent prayer times. Uh, to be honest, I could happily go home now. The prayer times have been so uh, refreshing and the sense of God's hand upon us and uh, his mercy to us as we've asked for his help and blessing through the conference. So thank you so much for that also. I do pray I can be a blessing to you. I'm going to be speaking tonight from 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read with you from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to start looking at how to live by the grace of God. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15. I'm reading from the NASB. I should be using it throughout the time here. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I make known to you, brothers... The gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain till now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me didn't prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Father, thank you so much for these great truths we've been singing. Just, Lord, celebrating the wonder of your mercy your lavish kindness. We thank you, Father, for awakening us from our sleep, Lord, delivering us from our bondage, bringing us into your family. Father, we are so grateful for your immense goodness to us. And Father, thank you. You said that if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more shall the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So we now ask, Father, for the Holy Spirit to come. Be our teacher. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and speak into our hearts. Come and take the things of Christ and reveal them to us. Come and energize us. Come and, Lord, shape us with your truth. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. With a wonderful classic passage, and of course it's the last verse I want to particularly concentrate on, where Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Uh, The whole matter of identity, who am I? People uh, certainly ask these days, who am I? What am I on the planet for? What's the purpose of life? People are asking these profound questions, and sadly, sometimes Christians are in a bit of a dilemma as well as to who are they, where do they stand 
Even who are they in relationship with God? Who are they in relationship with their brothers and sisters? Uh, Who am I? Who am I? Paul answers that question with this tremendous statement, by the grace of God, I am who I am. It's got a kind of familiar ring. If you know the Bible at all, you remember there was a day when Moses heard a voice out of a, a glowing bush that was just filled with glory and majesty, something about this bush it wasn't a natural fire, it didn't burn up the bush, it just glowed with glory. As he approached it, he suddenly heard his own name being called Moses, Moses. And he gets commissioned to serve God. And he asks, uh, who is speaking? And God replies, I am who I am. God himself, perfect from all confusion or other influences, uncreated, uncontaminated, unthreatened, I am who I am. And something of a, an echo of that now is found in Paul's heart, that somehow he's able to rise out from all other distraction and say, by the grace of God, I am who I am. And there's an enormous freedom that's in that statement. He's making a statement that is of incredible strength. By God's grace, I am not what I was before, but what God has made be my grace. In fact, if you'd asked Paul who he was before he had that encounter with Jesus, for he also met with a burning, shining light and had a revelation of God out of which he became a new person altogether. He was recreated. He gives us teaching like this. He says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. And then the old King James says, behold, And, uh, you know, most modern translations don't use behold. It's not a very modern word, is it? We don't say, oh, behold, a train is coming. You know, we're not not into behold. And so often Bibles just lose the word. But it's an important word. He says, if any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. Look, behold, old things have passed away. Check it out. All things have been made new. It's like, look at that. And uh, he's saying, look, by the grace of God, I'm not what I used to be. I'm a new creation. I'm a new person. You see, before we come to live by grace, we need a new identity by grace. And what I'm speaking about tonight is this starting place, really, that God gives us not just mercy. We often think of forgiveness as a place where you get, well, we, we, we think of grace as forgiveness. It's mercy. It's kindness. Yes, it's all those things. But here we're talking about a completely new identity. Do you realize you have a new identity? By the grace of God, I have a new identity. Last time I was in South Africa, I heard a song I'd never heard before. had this line in it, On the cross hung a man who redefined what I am. He's redefined us. He's given us a new identity. On the cross hung a man who redefined what I am. It's great to know uh, there's a new definition. And Paul would have said before, when he said, well, who are you, Paul? He'd have said, well, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I sat at Gamaliel's feet. He makes claims like this elsewhere. He says, I excelled above my brothers. He was a leading Pharisee. He was a leading uh, teacher one of the foremost of his generation, sitting under the foremost leader of his generation, Gamaliel, the great teacher. He's, he's, in that, that, that's who I am. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. It's like, well, it's my, my background. That's who I am. Many of us think, well, who are you? Well, 
my father was this, I went to that university, I had that education. That's who I am. I'm the product of what went before. I'm the product of my educational skills. I'm the product of how hard I've worked. That's who I am. And Paul was pretty arrogant about who he was. He was self-assured about who he was. He was very proud of who he was. God had to deal with that. God had to virtually destroy that. God had to shine in on him in such light that he had to be led by the hand. And led by the hand by, by, by someone we, never, we don't even know who he was. Ananias, just a guy in the Bible. It's not like Simon, Simon Peter, I mean, this is an important guy, Paul, we better send the big shot. No, 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 anybody would do. And he's blind and, and, he's, and he's like, it's, it's like he was in the dust. It's like Adam was made from dust, Paul had to be remade. Lifted up and reshaped. So that now he can say, no, by the grace of God. And he said, formerly I would have boasted in all these things. He said, now I count them rubbish. That's no longer who I am. I am no longer the product of my background. I'm no longer the product of my education. It's irrelevant. I count it trash. In fact, he uses a rather uglier word than that. He's got no time for religion. When we're walking in the street now, sometimes I say to Wendy, watch out, there's some religion there, don't stand there. Uh, Because that's the word he uses. That's the word he uses. I say, I count it just dung. It's a waste. It's no longer relevant. All that I accomplished as a result of my religious commitment and what I had gained, is I count what I gained loss. That goes in the loss account. Because now I'm in Christ. By the grace of God, I'm a new person. I'm no longer trying to impress God with my religious background. Or I went to that university. I got a distinction. Irrelevant. Now I'm in Christ by the grace of God. It's a completely new identity. He says, henceforth we used to know men in such and such a way. Now we know no man after the flesh. It doesn't impress anymore. It's by the grace. God's given us a new identity by grace. It's that by the grace of God I am. So he's cut free from all pride, arrogance, what he's accomplished. He's also cut free from something else which we read in the passage. He says, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. So Paul was a fairly complicated person like we can tend to be. On one side, he's quite proud of who he is. On the other side, he's got some pretty ugly history. There was a day when Stephen, one of the most bright stars in the New Testament, incredible young man, who, who, whose preaching could not be withstood for its wisdom, its power, signs, wonders, incredible young man, and they stoned him to death. And it says they laid their garments at the feet of Paul, and which tends to indicate he was the guy in charge. He was responsible for the death of the first Christian martyr. And so he says, as we read in the passage, he said, I, I, I'm not worthy to be called because I persecuted the church of God. Not only did he see Stephen stoned, he also says he was going from house to house, dragging out Christians, presenting them to the law courts. He was trying to destroy the church of God. So on one side, he's arrogant. On the other side, he's kind of committed a sin that you wonder, is there any forgiveness for? I mean, can you be forgiven for killing a young, incredible leader, actually killing him? 
So there's this other side. Is there any hope for me? Can, can I be forgiven for this? Suddenly struck blind. Suddenly, hey, who do you think you're touching? Why are you persecuting me? Why? Wow, I says, God, I'm not touching you. Yes, you are. You're touching my body. Oh, God, is there any forgiveness? Yes, there is, by the grace of God. I can be cut loose from pride and accomplishment. I can also be cut loose from everything that disqualifies. The grossest sin. But he's actually destroyed Stephen. He's actually persecuted the church of God. And so, yeah, he's got some incredible history. But now he can say, look, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I've been given a completely new start, a completely new sheet, a completely new identity. When you became a Christian, you were given a new identity. I wonder if you've taken that on board. We've invented phrases like, I asked Jesus into my heart. It's like you've got your identity and you added Jesus. That's not the New Testament concept at all. You don't say to all the other idols in your life, move over, make room for Jesus. He's coming in as well. It's not something that gets added to us. It's completely new identity which sets us free from our history, gives us a chance, gives us a clean sheet to start over again. And you'll find in the Bible that that uh, idea of giving people a new identity is back in the Old Testament even. There's a man called Abram. That's where the story really starts of world salvation. starts in Abram. And Abram, God comes to him and says, I'm going to call you Abraham. Abram was already an embarrassing name. Abram means exalted father. It's like, how do you do? I'm exalted father. Oh, really? Uh, Where's the children? Well, there aren't any yet, but I'm exalted father. And God says, no, I'm going to give you a new name. Father of a multitude. That's difficult to live with. <laughs> I'm father of a multitude. He gave him a new identity, gave him a new name. God loves to start a game with you. Give you a completely fresh start. So you find that often in the Bible. He comes to Jacob, who was a crook, a supplanter, someone who grabbed something that belonged to somebody else. He was a cheat, and that was in his name. And God said, no, no, I'll call you Israel, prince with God. A new identity by grace, a new identity. Not something that came from his personality, but something God gave him. You find a man called Gideon, and and he's scared, and he's hiding, and he's in a cave, and God comes to him and says, Oh, mighty man of valor. Oh, valiant warrior. You can almost imagine Gideon saying, Who's he talking to? <laughs> no, you, you, you. You think, but, but I mean, I'm just a cowardly man. Well, this guy, this cowardly man, is going to lead 300 soldiers against tens of thousands of soldiers. And they don't have a sword among them. I think that's a pretty valiant warrior, don't you? (laughs) See, God's going to make him a valiant warrior, and God's free to call him that as soon as he likes because he knows what he's going to be. He's going to give him a new identity foreign to what he was by nature. Scared rabbit. No, you're a valiant warrior. See, God can start with a person and make them something completely different. He just does it. He says to Simon, Simon, Son of Jonah, you're going to be Peter. I'm going to build on you. He can take you and change you by grace. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. God gives us a completely new identity. Have you taken that to yourself? 
You're celebrating that? I'm not what I was. But all that past, no, it's all cancelled. All the handwriting that was against you, it's nailed to his cross, it's gone. God gives you a fresh start by grace. It's all free. By the grace of God, I am what I am. God says in the Old Testament, you'll be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will give. That's our fresh identity. Then Paul goes on to say, in that context, he says, actually, this grace was given to him to be an apostle. So it's first grace for identity in God's presence. Secondly, it's grace to do a task. And so he says elsewhere, I've been given grace and apostleship. Grace and ministry. Grace to do something in the body of Christ. So they were given a new identity. We have its outworking in a body. It's not an isolated individual. God isn't into our individualism of our current generation. He loves corporate life. He loves us being together. And in that body, we have different gifts and ministries. And Paul's gift happened to be an apostle. It was a grace he was given. Romans 1.5, I was given grace and apostleship. 1 Corinthians 3, I was given grace as a wise master builder. It was a grace gift. In the New Testament church, there were a number of grace gifts. We feel that's still the same today. Why should we be given a pattern and then we have committees? No, the Bible says this is the way you do it. And he gives some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers. That's the biblical shape of the church. And they're grace gifts. It's not that you go away to theological college, take an exam, and if you get 90% and above, you're an apostle, 70% and above, prophets, 60% and above, evangelists, and the rest of pastors and teachers. <laughs> Paul says grace was given to him. It's, it's a Holy Spirit thing. He's given ability to be a wise architect, a master builder, someone who could see the shape of things. It was a grace gift. And Paul says, not that I'm worthy, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because of all that went before, but by the grace of God. The church is founded by grace gifts. It's totally dependent on grace gifts. It's not dependent on skills and abilities. It's not dependent on someone, of course, he's got a degree, he's going to get, well, obviously, no, no. The Bible says he chooses not many wise. You've got a degree and you're in here, you're lucky. Not many with degrees get in. He doesn't choose many wise, not many noble, not many mighty. God chooses the weak things, the foolish things. And God gives grace. It's, a, it's, his, it's his supply. Grace. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this grace was given to him to be a stewardship. He had a stewardship of his gift. He said, God was given grace to me for you. It wasn't for him. It wasn't so that he could be arrogant. He said, God's given me grace to be an apostle for you. God gives grace to pastor teachers for that. God gives grace to an evangelist. They're different gifts. Sometimes an evangelist will come to the church and, and he'll preach and the teacher can be sitting there listening as the guest evangelist preaches and he tells some stories and, and the teacher's sitting there thinking, he hasn't really explained the atonement. He, he hasn't really explained redemption. I mean, who's going to get saved? And, and the evangelist tells this thing and he says, now you come. And people go, oh, I come pouring forward. Oh, God, get saved. And the teacher thinks, man, wow. Next week he thinks, right, I'm going to do that. And he teaches and teaches redemption, atonement, the whole deal. And then he says, now you come. 
No one moves at all. But all the people say, oh, thank you so much. I, I understand it's so much better. I, I grasp it now. You see, it's a different gift, a different grace. People have been given diverse gifts, grace gifts. God builds his church by, he ascended on high, and he gave grace. Gave some apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. He didn't say just one man. Pre-Reformation, you had priests and people. Reformation said, no, the priesthood of all believers. But we've tended not to push that through and see the ministry of all believers. And Paul says, or at least Peter says in his epistle, as each has received a special gift. Each, he's talking about the whole of us. As each has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You could translate it multicolored grace of God. But in the church of God, there are various, lots of beautiful gifts, and we're all responsible to God to fulfill our role, our part. And so Paul said, well, his grace was to be an apostle. It may be your grace is the gift of hospitality, or the gift of administration, or the gift of prophecy, or the gift, all sorts of gifts, and our responsibility. So Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And then he talks about how he outworks that ministry. And then he says this, to work through the verse together. He says, this grace was not in vain. What's he saying? He's saying it's possible for God to initiate something in your life and for that to be in vain. It means it's possible for it to not function. It's not kind of plugged in properly. It doesn't happen as it should happen. And certainly our longing in putting on this conference that many of us will kind of plug into what God has for us. And Paul says, all this grace wasn't in vain. Now, what, what sort of things can make grace in vain? Let's just look at a few. One, first one might be, well, just unbelief, really. I've been looking at the life of Moses quite a bit lately and studying him and noticing how God, when first calls Moses, Moses' response is not, yeah, let's go and do that. Moses' response is, uh, I don't think so. I don't think I could do that. I can't speak. Send somebody else. And it doesn't say God says, oh, what a lovely, humble guy. It says God was angry with him. So actually, he's ducking. God's saying, I've got this for you. But many of us say, well, I don't know, not me. And sometimes we're a bit like that. Would you like to lead a small group? Well, I'm not sure I could do that. How about you coming into, well, no, I don't think so. And we, we, can, we can miss the grace of God through unbelief. And Paul puts it in that kind of language when he talks about the body. He says, if the foot should say, I'm not a hand, therefore I'm not part of the body. Or if the ear should say, I'm not an eye. It's like I look at her and I think, wow, she's so brilliant. I'm nothing. And Paul says you can miss the grace of God. You can make, God's ready to work in grace towards you. And, and you get the wrong anger. You say, no, I couldn't, I couldn't. You see, Gideon was like that. He said, well, I don't know. No, God said, I'm sending you. I'm calling you. I'm equipping you. I'm giving you grace. I'm giving you a new identity. Rise to it. And the, you see, the need out there, there's terrible need out there. People don't know about Jesus. They don't know the gospel. 
And God's got a people who know the gospel. And if we're going to reach those people, we have to come out of our weakness, out of our, I can't do it, to plug into, yes, I can do it. All sorts of things which by nature we feel I can't do. By His grace, God lifts us out of that and says, no, no, I make you a new creation. I put behind you all your guilt. I put behind you your inability. I call you. I commission you. And as He said to Gideon, I send you. He said to Jeremiah. Jeremiah said, I'm too young. He said, no, I have called you. I send you. My grace is on you. So, beloved, this is how we start. Paul says, I'm not worthy, but by the grace of God. I am what I am. This grace was not in vain. So unbelief can rob you. It can stop you getting into what God has for you. Another thing that can stop you enjoying grace is a strange thing, is legalism. Paul says in Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Then one more verse, Galatians 5.4 you who are seen to be justified by law have fallen away from grace. It's interesting, isn't it? We often think, if we ever use that phrase these days, it sounds a bit old-fashioned really, but sometimes you can say to someone, well, I haven't seen her in church lately. What's happened? Well, maybe she's fallen from grace. And we use that phrase quite wrongly when we use it like that. Oh, they're not coming to church anymore. Maybe they've fallen from grace. That's not the way Paul uses it at all. Paul uses it quite differently. Paul says, You're, you who are going back to law have fallen from grace. What happened was this, that Paul preached to, in Galatia, where he sent this letter, and he preached the gospel. Many people became Christians. Healings happened, signs and wonders happened, the outpouring of the Spirit happened. You can read about that in Galatians 3. They received the Spirit, signs and wonders. It's like, wow, it's a great church, full of the glory of God, full of the presence of God. And Paul had done his apostolic job. He brought to birth another church. He stays there for a season, and as they often did, as apostles, moved on to the next city. And when Paul moved out, the so-called Judaizers moved in behind him. That's uh, probably Christians, but with a Jewish background. And they've come in behind and they've said, hey, we're so glad that you Gentiles received our Messiah. It's wonderful. We're thrilled with you. We're thrilled. In fact, our prophets told us that one day the Gentiles will come. That's great you've come. Hey, this is wonderful. Uh, But um, we've known him for centuries. And if you really want to be accepted, if you really want to be embraced by God, um, there's some things you must do. Uh, You must be circumcised. You need to keep the Sabbath. Uh, You should um, not eat that kind of food. It's not on. Don't eat that food. Uh, Keep the feast days. And so they just kept adding more and more things. And Paul was absolutely furious. Paul wrote this, his angriest letter. He said, oh, you Galatians, who has bewitched you? It's a strong word. I mean, people are just trying to add a bit of law. Who has bewitched you? He says, you've fallen from grace. You've turned to law that is falling from grace. And it says this incredible thing. You are seeking to be justified by law. Have fallen. You see, you're trying to be justified by law. 
It can happen to us. It can be, it can be like, you know, you, you hear the gospel, and the modern equivalent would be, you, you, you know, you, you wonder, you meet someone who's a Christian, and you think, wow, she's somehow peaceful. What's with her? And she says, oh, come to church. You come to church, you think, well, they're all like it. They're kind of happy and peaceful and clean. There's something about them. And you think, I better, I better clean up my act. You try and you find you can't. You can't really, you can't change yourself. You can't do it. And then one day you're in church and you hear the gospel. Just as you are, you can come. And Jesus receives sinners and he, he accepts you as you are and he saves you. You think, wow, and you suddenly see it. And you come and you're born again, you receive the gospel. And then someone comes alongside you and says, did you get saved? Yeah, I got saved. Oh, wonderful. I'm so pleased you're a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I'd just like to help you a bit. Oh, great. Yeah, well, now you're a Christian. Yeah, yeah. You must read your Bible every day. Okay, yeah, I'll do that. And you must say your prayers. Okay, got it. And um, I wouldn't do your hair like that. I shouldn't do that. Okay. Okay, I'll change that. And I wouldn't dress like that. I wouldn't, no, you need to change that. And you shouldn't do that. Okay, got it. And, and don't do Oh, yeah, okay. I went, okay. Oh, yeah, and that. I think, I think I've got it all. Oh, okay, wonderful. I feel so released by my... <laughs> I got God, the gospel. You think, did, what happened to me? Did I get saved or did I get burdened? And sometimes we're like that because we, we feel, well, I know I got saved, but am I really accepted? And am I doing enough? Am I praying hard enough? And, and we, we don't necessarily go back to the Old Testament laws, but it's the same principle. We try and add things. We try to make sure we're thoroughly accepted. And Paul is furious. He said, how can you add to what Christ has done? And he says this, Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. You think, what, is, what does he mean, the end of the law? And he says also in, in Romans 6, he says, you're, you're not under law, you're under grace. Not under law? I wonder if I ask that question. You see, when Jesus said the law will never pass away, I wonder if I ask that question here tonight. I ask for a show of hands. If I said, now, which of you believes Christians are under the law? And which of you believes Christians are not under the law. I wonder if we would say, okay, uh, and if I said, let's, if I said, if, if, if I said, put up your hands, I think many of us would be looking at the elders. What are the elders doing? Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> we think, oh, I'm not sure where I am on this. But it's hugely important. Because Paul's saying, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And if we don't get a hold of that, Paul, Paul is saying, Galatians, I don't nullify grace. For if righteousness comes through, through the law, Christ died needlessly. I'm going to nullify grace. I'm going to make grace in vain. Let me just quickly turn you to Romans 7. We'll just spend a little while here. Because are we under the law or not? In the first six verses of Romans 7, there's a very clear teaching that will help us see it. So I'm just going to read it with you. Half a dozen verses. Romans 7. Don't you know, brothers... From speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. I mean, that sounds pretty full, doesn't it? I mean, he's got jurisdiction as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's living. But if her husband dies, 
she's free from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she joined to another man, she should be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she's not an adulteress, though she's joined to another man. Therefore, my brothers, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Verse 6, now we've been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit, not in oldness of the letter. Okay, so here, it's almost a kind of compression of the whole of the book of Galatians. A little illustration. He's saying that the law is like an overbearing husband, and we are all married to the law. So it's hard for the men to understand this, but that's it. The Bible says the law's our husband, and, and we're married to the law, and the law is telling us what to do. You should not do this, you should not do this, you should not do this. So he's got authority over us. And we can't say, well, I want to be part of the bride of Christ. No, you can't do that because you've already got a husband. That's what it's saying here. And it almost looks like he's, the answer is for the husband to die. But the Bible is consistent. Jesus said the law will never pass away. All right, so let's see how he deals with this. So the husband is telling us, don't do this, don't do this. And you can't argue with him because he's right. You can't say, oh, I don't agree. No, actually, actually, no, he's right. So you've got a husband who's always telling you where you're wrong, and he's always right. But sadly, he never lifts a finger to help you. See, I don't want to see too many husbands think, I think it's you you're talking about, dear. <laughs> he's always right. You know he's right. You can't argue with him. He never helps you. And Jesus said, he's never going to die. So you are permanently married to a fault-finding, perfect husband who will never, ever help you and is never going to die. Hallelujah. <laughs> Ain't religion grand, okay? So you're in a huge dilemma. And it almost looks like Paul is saying, you know, while he's alive, you're in trouble. But, he, but Jesus said he won't die. But suddenly in verse 4, he kind of turns things on his head because in verse 4 we need to see quite carefully what he says. Therefore, my brothers, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. The law doesn't die. And Paul says in Timothy, the law is good, provided you use it lawfully, knowing it's not for the righteous, but for sinners. The law doesn't die. The law carries on doing its work. But Paul says to the church, the Christian, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. What does that mean? Well, Paul's favorite expression for a Christian is someone who is in Christ. Someone who's, who's wrapped up in Christ. And, and Christ had two relationships with the law. His primary relationship with the law was one of total innocence. The Bible calls him innocent. Jesus said this, which of you convicts me of sin? He challenged people. He said, the devil's coming. He's got nothing on me. And so Jesus' one relationship with the law was perfect obedience to the law. 
But suddenly, or gradually, as he went up to the cross, there came that moment when he's on the cross, and the Bible says this, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. In that moment, God laid all our guilt on Jesus, so much so that he personifies sin. God made him to be sin. God changed his identity. God, Jesus became the personification of all sin. And when he hung on the cross, the law cursed him. Cursed is everyone who hangs upon the tree. He bore the guilt of our sin. He bore the judgment of the law. He died once and for all to the law. Jesus died taking our guilt. And Paul says, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. That when Christ died on the cross, we died on the cross. So in Galatians 2.20, says, we've been crucified with Christ. It's a done deal. It's over. We have died to the law. It's a finished thing. It's all over. And so we no longer have a relationship with the law. We have died to its claims. He says in verse uh, 6, you have now been released from the law having died to that by which you were bound. We were bound to the law, the Ten Commandments. We were bound to it. But we've died to it. It's finished. It's all over. It says you were discharged. It's like a soldier who's, who's been in the military, and maybe for two or three years he's just obeyed every command, march, turn left, turn right, and then there comes the day when he's discharged. It's all over. He finished, you're out. And you imagine that guy when he's... Uh, being discharged, he's walking across the parade ground, he's got no tie on, he's got his jacket over his shoulder, and the sergeant turns the corner and says, Soldier! You think, oh, Sarge! You think, oh, wait a minute, I'm out. <laughs> Bye, Sarge. <laughs> and it doesn't matter how much he shouts at you, he can't touch you. You're out. You're discharged. And that's what it says here, we are discharged. We're no longer under the law's authority. The tragedy is this. It's not just that the law's authority, but Satan, the accuser, gets behind this whole thing. And the Bible says he accuses us day and night. That's what he does more than anything else. So it's, it's like he gets the head of Christians down. So they say, well, you're not doing well enough. You, who do you think you are? He'll accuse you. Call yourself a Christian. And, and he gets behind this whole thing. So we're forever trying to fight off this guilt and this condemnation. But the Bible says, no, 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 you've died to those requirements. You've died to the law. Then it says this wonderful thing. You are made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that you might bear fruit for God. So it's still using marriage language, and he's saying you've died to that husband in order that you might be joined to a new husband, to him who was raised from dead. Well, obviously Jesus. So you've got a new husband now. And then it says this, you might bear fruit. Now that's a new idea. In your relationship with your old husband, there's no reference to bearing fruit. All your old husband told you was, don't do that. You mustn't do that. That's not allowed. That's not on. That old husband... He didn't impart fruit. Now you're joined to a new husband that you might bear fruit. See, Paul says in Galatians, right through Galatians, he's arguing this. Galatians chapter 3, verse 21, very important verse. He says this, If a law had been given, 
that was able to impart life, then righteousness would come by the law. That's a very important statement. If a law had been given, that could impart life. See, if the law can impart life, let's go, let's go into all the schools. Let's go downtown. Let's go to the wicked places. Let's go and tell them. Let's go and say, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You should not commit adultery. Just go and tell them. If the law can impart life, let's just tell them. But the Bible says, no, the the law doesn't impart any life. He's an impotent husband. He doesn't impart any life. We've died to the law, the law, the law that told us to do stuff we couldn't do. We've died to that overbearing, guilt-imparting husband so that we might be joined to him who was raised from the death that we might bear fruit. We've got a new husband. And he's a husband who imparts life. He says things like this, my peace I give to you. My joy, I say these things that my joy might be in you. His love is poured out in our heart by the Holy Spirit. He's a, he's a life-imparting husband. We find a husband who, who changes us from the inside. And so, beloved, you don't go back to the law. See, sometimes you think, well, I'm not doing very well. I'm not doing as well as I should. I'm really, I really wish I was doing better. And, and you feel maybe I've slipped and slipped. You know, I'm not, and you say, oh, I'm sorry, Lord, I'm not what I used to be. I really haven't walked with you as I, I wish I had. And Lord, I tell you what, Lord, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll try and keep this up, I'll try harder with that. Uh, will that keep you happy? It's like saying to a new husband, I'll try and develop my relationship with my old husband. Is that the way I'll keep you happy? Doesn't work, does it? Jesus said, I am the way. We don't need a way to the way. He is the way. He's the life imparter. And even to us, when we, he says in, in the letter to the Laodiceans in, in Revelation, he says, you've grown lukewarm. He says, I'm outside the door knocking. If anyone hears my voice and keeps the law. No, no. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and sup with him. I'm a life-imparting husband. We never go back to the law. It's a finished thing. It's a done deal. I've got a new husband. See, sometimes you say to a Christian, how are you getting on? Well, I'm a bit up and down. It's not really up and down. It's like husband to husband. I'm going back to the old guilt-imparting husband. When actually, no, we're discharged from him. So, you see, otherwise we're forever doing stuff to try and satisfy him. It's like, oh God, you might be like, maybe I'm the wife of somebody here this evening. Or maybe, uh-uh, let me pretend I'm one of the wives here. I say, oh God, bless my husband today at work. Make, it, make him a blessing. Oh Lord, I, I really pray that you'll um, you let his light shine. Help him witness. And oh, it would be so nice to bless him with a meal tonight. I think I could give him a really nice meal. I know what he'd like. He'd like a real nice... I'll, I'll, go, and find, I'll go and find a nice steak. I'll get him a steak, a nice bottle of wine. I really... Uh, oh, it'd be so nice. I know he'd be encouraged. And, uh, oh, I'm supposed to be praying. Oh, oh, I'm supposed to be praying. Oh, dear. Um, uh, uh, God, uh, yeah, what's the missionaries? Yeah, the missionaries this week. We've got the missionary supper. Uh, yeah. Oh, God, bless the missionaries on Friday when they come to speak to us. 
Um, uh, Lord, look, let, let, us, let us get a real vision uh, for what they're doing. And as they show us their, their slides, and after we have the missionary supper, oh, supper. I'm supposed to do the salad. Oh, I haven't done the salad. I've got to go and get the salad. Oh, gosh, I must get to the shop. Have I got time? Yeah, I get, well, I could, I, at the same time, I could, get that, I could get that meal for my husband. That would be really nice. I could, that would be such fun. And then Satan comes, you see. He says, oh, mighty woman of intercession. <laughs> are, are you prevailing in the heavenlies? He said, prevailing in the heavenlies. I'm useless, you know. I'm trying to pray. My brain goes out the window. Oh, I'm hopeless. I can't pray. Oh, God, I'm a useless Christian. When was my Bible reading? Yeah, I would get bits of my Bible reading. Uh, where was I? Yeah, I remember I was... 13 days behind, wasn't I? I, was, I, yeah, I, just got, I was just in Leviticus, I remember. Yeah, I was, the priest shall take the blood and put it on the horns of the altar. He shall remove from it all the fat of the bull of the sin offering and the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that's on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that's on them, which is on the loins, and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys. See, see, then Satan comes and says, getting a lot out of it, are we? You see, and you say, no, I'm useless. See, I'm, a use- I'm a useless Christian. You see, and it may be that you were in the meeting last night, yeah, I love you, Jesus, we're together, I'm right with you, Lord. And in the morning, you're a useless Christian. Something terrible must have happened through the night. Now, now, this morning you are evaluating your relationship with God on certain things you try to do that give you self-worth, that give you a sense of identification. You know, I prayed a good prayer this morning. Or I didn't. And we said, well, I didn't have a good prayer time. I probably had a terrible day. I probably missed the bus now because I didn't do my stuff. So you think, well, Terry, don't you read the Bible? No, I love reading the Bible. But I don't read the Bible to impress God. I don't say, hey, two chapters this morning, Lord. Good, eh? Hey, get points for that, two chapters. <laughs> I prayed for 20 minutes this morning, Lord. How about that? 20 minutes, good, good. You see, see, people get that way. How are you getting on? Well, I'm not doing well. That's, not, that's nothing to do with it. I have a righteousness that's been given me as a gift. And Paul says the tragedy of his contemporaries was that they were trying to build up a righteousness based on law instead of accepting the righteousness that was given them as a gift. It's going back to law. It's going back to self-justification. How am I keeping the rules? How am I trying to... That's not the point. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I love reading the Bible, but I want to find out more and I know God better. I actually love praying. I've been here a couple of days. We've been in prayer meetings. It's been a delight. None of it has been, hope you're impressed, God. I found someone who's already impressed him. Jesus has completely impressed the Father, and I'm in him. I'm in him. I was praying once, and as I was praying, I felt God reminded me of that story in the Old Testament when Jacob came to his blind father, Isaac, and his blind father had a son that he really loved, and that son was called Esau. He was the son the father loved. 
And one day Jacob came and put on Esau's clothing. You know the story. Put on the skins and drew near, hoped his blind father wouldn't realize who it was. And I was praying and I felt God really spoke to my heart and reminded me of that story and said to me, don't be scared that I'll find you hidden in the son that I love because I've placed you in the son that I love. See, Jacob was scared. His father might say, hey, what are you doing in there? Out there. No, God said, no, I've placed you. And it says in Ephesians, he accepts us in the son that he loves. And Jacob was hidden in Esau's clothing, received all the blessings because the father's son, father's love for his special son. I've been blessed because I'm in the son that the father loves. All blessings come from there. It's nothing that we deserve. It's nothing that we built up credit for. It's because of who we're in. We're in Christ. We're in the one, the Father. It's He who's done it. That's why He gets all the praise. That's why we sing His worship. Not because we are accumulating some kind of worth. He's given it to us as a gift. That's what grace is all about. It's mercy. Oh, the mercy. Oh, the mercy. Didn't we love singing it tonight? It's a free gift. And beloved, we need to get so clear about that. I've been a Christian. In fact, I've been a minister for several years. I've been filled with the Spirit. And then some years later, I suddenly saw the grace of God. And I know what it's like to pray and get up off your knees and think, I could have prayed longer. Or read the Bible and think, oh, I didn't, know, I didn't get much. And feel I'm I just had enough, Lord. Did I do enough? I'm trying to be a good Christian. But often feeling that sense, did I do enough? And then one day, it's like I saw a break in the clouds. I felt God said, there's more. It's much freer than you're seeing. I suddenly saw his grace. Set me free. Absolutely set me free. I was preaching once in Cape Town, South Africa. It was ever so hot. I was preaching in a tent, actually. There were hundreds of people there. And I preached the grace of God. And a lady came up to me with her husband. And she's in a navy blue suit. I can still see her hat on white gloves, and she's dressed like she's in church, and, and everybody's in shorts, and it's a hot day. And she came up to me and said, is what you've said true? She said, I've been a Christian as long as I can remember. I've never heard that before. I said, yeah, of course it's true. I've just read it verse by verse with you. <laughs> and she said, oh, pray for me. We pray together. I was back there a year later, and I remember seeing her big husband next to her, and there she was, and he said, it's like I've got a new wife. (laughs) She'd stepped out from this horrible guilt that religion puts on you. And Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this grace to me wasn't in vain. So this is one of the ways in which we can make grace vain. We can add legalism to it. Paul says, I don't nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, Christ died needlessly. He says, you're wrecking the gospel. You're not adding to the gospel. You're spoiling the gospel. You're missing the point. You're turning, the, you're turning Christianity into any other religion where you have to do stuff. You know, go to Mecca, wash in the, wash in the Ganges, say 25 Hail Marys. Just add stuff. And Paul says, no, when you add stuff, you've missed the point. You've missed the point. So, beloved, are we clear about the grace of God? 
But just looking at this theme tonight, I've just had the nerve to commend that book to you again. It's good to get into the book. Read God's lavish grace. Get it into your heart. Really understand it. So you say, hey, I've understood. I'm a free believer. You've got a whole church full of free believers. Not just one over here and another one over there. But the whole church understands we live by grace. You change the church. You change what a church looks like. You change the atmosphere. Church, sometimes you go into a church, you feel this is a miserable place. These people are more miserable than sinners are. Because <laughs> they're just living under this heavy thing. And they haven't understood the grace of God. So Paul says his grace to me was not in vain. So we're just saying the first one can be unbelief, like Moses saying, oh, I don't think I can. Second one is adding law. I'm going to rush through just two or three more. Next one is what I call license, right? License. The great Bonhoeffer talked about cheap grace. Where grace, well, let me just read you a couple of Bible verses. 1 Peter 2.16, act as free men, but don't use your freedom as a covering for evil. Another one, Jude 4, ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness. Third one, 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but I won't be mastered by anything. So it's possible, and the Bible deals with this. So it's no good for us to see Christians, oh no, that's dangerous teaching, you mustn't teach that. They lived with the danger of it and taught into it. That's what we have to do, teach into it. So they said, look, understand grace, but don't make it a cloak. Don't make it a cloak for sin. They say, well, we're just living in grace. See, I, I used not to drink. Now I drink because, wow, we're free, aren't we? I'm so free. I'm getting freer by the minute. I'm really free. And he said, hey, what are we doing? He said, I will, all things are lawful, but I won't be mastered by anything. What are you saying? You're saying I'm so free I can get taken over? What are you saying? You're, 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 you're turning the grace of God into licentiousness. So they didn't say grace is dangerous, don't teach grace. Paul taught grace all the time. But they also taught, don't take liberties with grace. Don't say I'm free, I'm so free that I'm getting in bondage to sin. To prove my freedom. Don't do it, don't go there. You make grace in vain. So the Bible's very thorough. Deals with it from every side. So God has freed us in an amazing way. Imagine what it was like for these Jewish people who'd lived with law all their lives. Then the gospel comes. And you think, boy, am I allowed to do that? It's like, can I eat pork and go to heaven? <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah, you can eat pork and go to heaven quicker. <laughs> but it must, it must have been incredible freedom. Wow, we're not under these restrictions anymore. They're in grace now. That's what happened. People stepped out of their terrible legalism into sonship. I'm a son with a father. I say, Abba, Father. It's outrageous, the intimacy that we have with God. But we don't use that as a cloak for sin. So that's another way we can make grace in vain. One or two others. Paul says, I submitted my gospel to the other apostles who were in Christ before him, lest he should run in vain. He's saying, I know I've seen the Lord. 
I mean, Paul says, my gospel, I know I got it from God, but I know, although I know I got it from God, I do, I do submit to the other apostles, lest I should run in vain. What is that saying? It's saying I honor the body of Christ. And although Paul knew he had revelation from God, although he was absolutely sure of that, he said, I submitted my gospel to stop. I didn't want to run with enthusiasm into something that was wrong. And so our attitude should be that we honor the body of Christ. We honor teachers. We, you'll find on a book table outside, you won't find teachers just by New Frontiers writers. You'll find teachers from all sorts of places like Keller and Piper and great teachers because we honor the body of Christ. We say, come on, let's understand church history. We always have church history in our uh, conferences. We want to honor. There's a long history of church. There's a long history of people missing the way. So we're going to say, no, no, come on, let's honor the body of Christ, lest we should run in vain. And that's often been a sad thing with the charismatic people who think the church got invented 10 years ago and then rush off to silly things. And they're not honoring church history. They're not honoring the body of Christ. They're not honoring other believers and respectfully saying, what do you feel about this? Having an open heart. So important. Paul says that was Paul's attitude. He didn't want to run in vain. And then the last one, the actual one he actually says, he says, I worked harder than any of them. He didn't want grace to make him lazy. See, grace, grace and hard work are not enemies. It's not like, hey, what are you working so hard for? Don't you know about grace? Paul says, no, his grace to me was not in vain. I worked harder than any of them. Grace is not meant to make us lazy. Grace is not meant to say, well, who cares anymore then? It's grace. Just let go and let God. Woo-hoo. No, he says, I work harder than any of them. And then he says this extraordinary thing. He says, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that's with me. And that's the last thing we'll look at this evening as we wind up this message. I worked hard, and yet this strange kind of phrase, I worked hard, but yet not I. Paul, hold on. Are you working hard or not? Who is doing this work? What are you talking about? I worked hard, yet not I, but the grace of God, that's with me. See, let's just look at it. Some people think that serving God is kind of paying back your debt. It's like, God, thank you, Jesus, you saved me. Thank you, you paid the price. I will spend the whole of my life paying you back. And some people have got that philosophy of what Christianity is. Your Christian life is paying back the amazing grace. Lord, you gave me such grace, I will serve you. I will serve you to pay back, to pay back. I love Paul Oakley's great song which says, Who can repay you? All of creation looks to you. <laughs> a sublime theology in there. Because you can feel, see, debt, grace is not trying to put you in debt. Grace is freeing you. Say, all debts are paid. So it's not like I'm living indebted to God. No, he's just paid all your debts. He's cancelled all the handwriting that was against you. So when we're serving God, we're not trying to repay the debt. So it's not like, well, he paid me grace. I'm working hard, Lord. I'm working hard to repay that. That's not the deal. Nor is it, We're working hard and then coming up for grace sometimes. 
It's not like, it's like, I'm working really hard, working hard, and it's really, it's tough serving God. Sometimes you come up, you know, back, let's get on with work again. And then you come up for a bit of grace. Back to hard work. Keep your nose to the grindstone. Work at it. Then come up, a bit of grace. No, Paul doesn't say that. Paul says this amazing thing. He says, I'm working hard, yet not I. But the grace of God, that's with me. It's not working hard and then coming up for a bit of grace. It's somehow the gift works in you. Grace is actually at work in you. So sometimes when I meet someone with a gift of hospitality, say, I'm amazed. There was a lady in the first church I was pastor at, and she always used to stand near the door when I preached, and afterwards she'd say, any students, anyone come, just send them down. Come, come with Wendy, come and have lunch. I think, how can you do this? She's like, she's got this elastic table. Just got, <laughs> and there'd be five or six extra. And, oh, lovely, come along, nice to see you. You think, how do you do this? And it wasn't like, all oh, these people. No one washes up. It's none of that. You never, you never met that. You met this incredible gift. And, and you see, it wasn't... What was happening is it wasn't that she, I better come up for some grace. I worked hard at lunch. No, no. It was grace in it. Grace in the gift. Grace at work. Paul says, I work with all the energy that he mightily inspires within me. And sometimes you can go through a busy conference. I've, my experience with someone would say, aren't you exhausted after that? I sometimes have to say, to be honest, I'm a bit exhilarated. And sometimes your body's tired, but... <coughs> When you're in the gift God's given you, there's a grace. And that's the problem with Mary and Martha. When, when she's saying, hey, look, she doesn't do anything. Won't get her to work. It's, it's like she's not working with grace. She's doing the stuff. Someone needs to do it. And why didn't she help? That's not grace. There's a grace that's on people to do stuff. And God gives them the skill and the capacity and the grace to do it. We live in grace. We enjoy grace. And we also need to see it's a corporate thing. We do this together. Everything in the New Testament is really worked out corporately. We find our gift in terms of the body. It's not for alone. See, we live in such an individualistic age. But God wants us to understand a corporate community. And grace is given in the body. Gifts, gifts of grace that are given to us, that we share. We're sharers in God's grace. So Paul says this, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Can you say that? Is that who you are? So important. Who are you? Well, I come from, see sometimes it can be pride, sometimes it can be shame. I came from a very humble home. That's not really the point anymore. We don't know anybody after the flesh. We're not interested really. Is you're in Christ now. That's your new identity. We receive it, beloved. Maybe there's a real shame. Maybe we did something you've always wondered, can I ever be forgiven for that? I wrecked her life. I spoiled his life. I, people carry guilt. And Paul says, look, I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God. You see, he didn't let that wreck the rest of his life. He didn't carry guilt into the next year 
the next decade. He said, no, he said, no God's dealt with it. I am not going to carry that with me. Will you make that choice tonight? See, receiving grace is like a choice. It's like, I'm not going to let it be in vain. If God's willing to be this generous, I'll take it. I'll take it. It gives me a new identity. Clean sheet. Complete new identity. And grace, gift grace. Not my what I've accomplished, not how hard I work. Not what I've done to achieve merit, to get merit stamps. You've given me a righteousness that's free. Jesus is my righteousness. When I wake up tomorrow morning, Jesus Christ is my righteousness. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Every day I wake up, he's my righteousness again. Every day, whoop, here we go. He's my righteousness again. But you don't have a very good prayer time. No, Jesus is my righteousness. He's my righteousness again this morning. It says in Hebrews that the Old Testament priests could never sit down. They never finished. They were always offering more sacrifices. Jesus sat down after one offering, having perfected for all time those who were sanctified. He's perfected you for all time. It's not a bad deal, is it? <laughs> Wake up tomorrow. You think, the Bible talks about entering into rest. That he has perfected you for all time. The gospel's good news. It's not good advice. It's good news. He has perfected us for all time. Also, it says in Hebrews, the law made nothing perfect. It made nothing perfect. The law can't add anything to you. Some would say, ah, you need a bit of law. No, the Bible says you're finished with it. You've died to it. You're discharged from it. That's not the way you deal anymore. You're married to a new husband who says, I give you my love, my peace, my joy. You dwell in me, and I dwell in you. You'll bear much fruit. This is a better husband. Let's stick with this husband. How do I get fruitful? Get very close to your husband. Enjoy his love. Let him impart life to you. That's the new covenant. The old covenant drives you to the new covenant. You don't then go back to the old one. It's obsolete, it says in Hebrews. That's a good word, isn't it? Obsolete. Out of date. Jesus gives us life. And let's not let that be in vain. Tragedy. Paul says, now, his grace to me wasn't in vain. I didn't mess it up. I took it on board. Let's stand to pray. And then perhaps the musicians could come up and we'll celebrate God's goodness. Let's just draw near to Him for grace that changes everything. Thank you, Lord. That old covenant Lord, it used to be like the moon that filled a bright sky, filled a night sky. Look up at that shining moon. Now we thank you, this new covenant. It's like the sun shining. We can barely see the moon now. It surpasses it in glory. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for removing our guilt, for giving us a righteousness that's not our own, but now belongs to us. We thank you for the freedom. We thank you, we can honestly say, By the grace of God, I am what I am.
Oh, it's wonderful, Lord. So grateful. And we don't want it to be in vain, Lord. Teach us how to draw on grace, to live in grace, to celebrate grace, to be energized by grace. Thank you. Keep on giving to us again and again. Lord, thank you so much. Bless your word to us. Help us to receive it in our hearts, to live it out for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.